Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Our guest today is Alain Berto. He is a senior research scholar at the Marin Institute at New York University and the author of Order Without Design, How Markets Shape Cities, my favorite book about urban planning. Welcome to the show, Alain. Thank you for inviting me. So to start, you frequently talk about cities as labor markets. What does that mean? It means that the foundation of a city is its labor market. and that should direct us in an operational way to know what is the most important thing for a city to function. And to me, it's this labor market. Labor market doesn't mean that everybody has a job. It means that it is a market. The emphasis is on the world market. It means that workers are able to change jobs whenever they feel like it. And when they feel that their welfare depends on it or their interest or whatever. And at the same time, also that employers have a choice between a lot of workers with different skill, depending on the way their business evolve. So the larger this labor market and uh, if they work well, then it creates an enormous amount of productivity and creativity. Now, everything we like about cities is built on this labor market. For instance, meeting friends, going to concert, going to museum, restaurant, whatever we like to do in cities, is built on this labor market. The day the labor market collapse, all this superstructure that we enjoy in cities collapse at the same time. You know, the example of Detroit, you know, illustrate a case like that. But very often, also when you have a city which uh, with only one employer, a city built by a company around a steel mill or whatever. This uh, city are, are not really a labor market because there is only one employer, you know, in a way, and uh, they don't work very well. The cities of the former Soviet Union or China before reform were not labor market, although they had full employment, but they are no labor market because people were employed in a place, in a factory, and they will stay there all their life. They had no way of changing. So that's not a labor market. So the word market is very important. It's not some. Uh, the other aspect of uh, this labor market is that it implies if you want to have really a choice between different jobs, depending on the evolution of your career or your interest, it means that you should be able to access any job within a metropolitan area, not just the jobs which are within 10 minutes uh, walk or bicycling from your house. So that's the other implication, which I think a lot of planners did agree with that. They think that the, through um, clever planning, they can match job and housing to be next to each other. This is really the destruction of a labor market. Basically, that's the way the Soviet Union worked. You know, the factory had houses for their workers, which were usually not always, but usually close to the factory. But that didn't create any productivity because there was no choice. You know, again, it is based on the freedom to select your job and change job often if necessary. 
by the way, you find this notion of uh, labor market in already in Adam Smith. You know, he, he mentioned the fact that you should change job maybe often and select, you know, this freedom of selecting your job is a basic thing about creativity and productivity. So how do you think about, I guess, mega regions? There's been a lot of discussion about sort of mega regions, for example, the U.S., like Northeast from Boston all the way down to Washington, D.C., or sort of the California Greater Bay Area, which isn't right. really a city, it's much larger. Do those function within the same sort of labor market paradigm? They should. They are fragmented labor market next to each other. So you have an advantage if you have overlapping labor market, but which are fragmented. You have an advantage over a region, which is much smaller, obviously, but they are not integrated. You know, it's not really possible. You know, you could commute, say, from New York to Boston, maybe twice a week, but you cannot commute every day. So it's not an integrated labor market. And then on top of it, in the Bay Area, like in the Eastern Seaboard area, now the cost of housing is such that it prevents people from moving freely around or even from moving from outside those areas to this very high productivity area like the Bay or New York, uh, Washington, Boston. So that, and by the way, this is where the Chinese are in advance on us right now because they have identified what they call cluster cities, which are basically cities which by the way, we're not planned. Eh? They spontaneously evolve around very large cities, you know, like between Beijing and Tianjin, of course, in the Pure River Delta, that the Chinese now call the Greater Bay Area, by the way, which is a little confusing with uh, San Francisco. But, you know, the Greater Bay Area, the Pure River Delta, has now 65 million people living there. The Chinese are developing transport system to integrate them in one labor market. A few years ago, to go from Hong Kong to Guangzhou, it will take about three or four hours. Now you can do it in 40 minutes. Now, this doesn't mean that Guangzhou and Hong Kong are integrated labor market. You still have a border, by the way, in between. But, um, but it means that they are going toward that and they are very well aware of this you know, the increase in productivity that you can get by integrating those labor markets. And I don't see the same uh, understanding uh, in the Western world among planners. Planners still dream of a lot of villages close together, you know, where you will bicycle to work and know your neighbors and things like that, which is not the way a modern city works. So if the West wants to compete with China, how many people should live in the San Francisco Bay Area and how do we get that outcome? I think that it's not so much, I think at this moment, improve transport. Improve transport so you could, you know, now it's, let's say, if you live in the north of the Bay, for instance, uh, Marin County, say, San Rafael, and you find a very, very good job in Silicon Valley, San Jose, uh, you know, commuting will be hell. You know, you could, some people do it, by the way, but it's about two hours. I have a friend who does that, but he rented an apartment down in South Bay. Right, yeah. Because otherwise, you, it's, it's just too Otherwise, long to it's too, too confusing. But you could conceive a transport system where it would be possible. By the way, I don't think that the traditional metro system, metro and buses, a feeder bus, you know, correspond to that. This is uh, something I discuss in my book, is that, our traditional transport system of, you know, either you drive or you take uh, a subway and, and a bus or a bus and a subway is just too slow for this very large area. 
And it's good for, you know, if you move within Manhattan, for instance, the subway is fine. Or within Washington, D.C., subway is fine. But increasingly, even in Washington, so many jobs now are dispersed in the suburbs. Uh, the subway will not get you to very many jobs, you know. So you have, instead of having this duotomy where you have either cars or transit, neither of one is completely efficient, although usually in the metropolitan area, uh, car trips are shorter than uh, transit trips, but none of them is very efficient. I think you'll have to have a mix in the same trip, a mix of modes, like, you know, a door-to-station mode, and then a fast train, not with a, you know, not with a stop every kilometer, but a stop every five or six kilometers, because then you will have another mean of transportation, which is individual or maybe shared by two or three people, rather than a bus, which is shared by, you know, 60 or 800 people, which means that the bus will be much slower. And so previously you mentioned, for example, like company towns don't have effective labor markets. Right. But more broadly than that, how do you think about like, right, labor markets need to be a market within sort of with more context. So like within industries, for example, San Francisco has tech, right? Like LA has acting, New York has finance. So how do you think about the integration of specific industries with labor markets of cities? Yeah, I think that within the city you are just quoting here, it's a bit of simplification to say that, for instance, New York is finance. New York is also Broadway. New York is also high-tech. And sometimes the high-tech come precisely from the finance. You know, the, the quants started the high-tech and then they move into something else. So I think that those large metropolitan area, although they have a, maybe a dominant theme, they have a large array of complementary jobs which are rather independent and go each in their own direction. And this is the wealth and the productivity of this is, is coming precisely from this mix of jobs, you know, completely. Uh, you know, there's not one sector which completely dominates, although there is an image, you know, as you say, New York has this image of uh, Wall Street, but I am not sure now what Wall Street represents directly, but it's not a very large number of jobs compared to all the others. And the others which are service to other sectors, you know, like, the high-tech is a good example of that. The high-tech serve all sorts of, uh, you know, serve transport. You know, the high-tech serve lift, but it's also serve finance. It's also serve, I'm sure now, you know, Broadway is using a lot of high-tech to find clients or to select, uh, you know, musicals or things like that, I'm pretty sure. So you see, you have this uh, spilling over of knowledge between sectors. And this is very different from a city, you know, like, was uh, Pittsburgh before or something, which was just around one industry, really, which dominated. Should mayors be CEOs or janitors? Uh-huh. Uh, well, uh, a janitor is a good CEO. In a way. <laughs> 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 I think that uh, what bothers me with uh, sometimes, you know, I discuss uh, this, uh, the use of vision for a mayor. And I think that the idea that you have a vision means that inside your head, you have this idea, this city should become this. And the role of a mayor is to serve the productivity and the invention of the citizen of the city. It is not to substitute for them, to tell them this is a direction where to go. 
you know, again, Silicon Valley was not created by a mayor who say, let us develop high tech in this area. It was developed by the people who were living there and were, you know, tinkerer, you know, in, in garage and some of that. And eventually, 20 mayors, which are in Silicon Valley, which are running Silicon Valley, this, you know, managed to produce sufficiently sufficient services in terms of, you know, remove garbage, uh, put transport, uh, tax people so they could uh, fill potholes. So they managed well this area so that it could grow. But there was no vision of a mayor, you know, there. And I think that sometime when you have a mayor with a, a vision, sometimes it's just a pure thing. There is no vision really, it's just a pure. So that's not too dangerous. But I think that words are important. You know, it gives a false idea of the mayor have to invent the city. A mayor is just there to serve it. Imagine if you have the janitor in a condominium and he decide that uh, we would like to have... Uh, Nobel Prize winners uh, on the top floor, and then we will have this at, uh, at the middle floor, and then we have, uh, you know, this will be a disaster. All the janitor is asked is to be sure that the elevator is working, the heating system is working, to know when the heating system has to be replaced, or, you know, this is what's important, and that's what the mayor should do. So be really listening to his tenants, you know, to the people who are there, and then uh, servicing, providing an infrastructure to service their sector. And in a way, in the Bay Area, with all the jobs which have been created, the transport system is not very satisfactory. And, you know, it has not followed really. And I think that's a failure of a maybe a janitor at, at the metropolitan scale, you know, which do not exist. You know, there are only a lot of very small janitors there, <laughs> including the mayor of San Francisco, by the way. What does a city without a labor market look like? Well. We have seen some, you know, in the Soviet Union. Well, first, the land is frozen in its current use because it's a labor market which gives value to the land in a way. When there is a lot of demand for land in an area, the value of the land goes up. And then this change in land value in a market economy creates change in land use, which adapts to the new needs. If you look at a city like Moscow or St. Petersburg in the 90s, you know, just when the Soviet Union collapsed, you will see in area which were very close to the city, industrial area which were created, you know, at the time, maybe even before the Soviet Revolution. And they were still there. They were 19th century factories, which were in, right in the middle of the center, you know, very close to the city center. In Moscow, if I remember well, there were more than 35% of the land used by factories. Many of them were 19th century factories, still there, served by the subway and things like that, where, and those factories had very, very few employment, in fact. So you have no recycling of land in a city without a market economy. Whether it's a labor market, which is missing, you know, if the labor market is missing, probably the land market is also missing. You know, those things goes together. You have a city which is frozen in time in a way. And that was the case of the Soviet city and the Chinese city also, you know, before the reform of uh, Deng Xiaoping. In 2050, 30 years from now, how will cities be different? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Make a guess. <laughs> uh, I'm sure they would be very different. 
unless we screw up completely, if they are not different, it means that, again, we are frozen in time and we'll be like the Soviet Union. So Let me then break the question down a little bit more. So, right, like, I interpret one of your main hypotheses as basically being, right, like, labor markets are important. Yes. And transportation is crucial for labor markets. Yes. So you can look at, right, like labor markets function differently if they're dependent on cars, if they're dependent on public transportation, if they're dependent on human powered traffic. Yes. And so if we think about 2050, there's basically several technologies that might have an effect on the transportation, transportation. ability. Yes, right, yeah. And so namely, those are what yeah. I see is that the main technologies are things like Hyperloop. Things like you could get increased like supersonic travel. And we already have scooters, autonomous vehicles, and then also with VR, VR might allow for a labor market to exist without being in person. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that you have to see all these things together. There's not a silver bullet, you know, it's not an electric scooter, which will change it, but the electric scooter could be a component on this. Together again with a hyperloop or tunneling also, you know, tunneling being much, much cheaper than it used to be. Uh, although when you look at the last tunneling in New York, you will not believe <laughs> it. But that's a, that's a, it's not a technological issue. It's something. It's, Why is New York so bad at digging tunnels? <laughs> well, I have a colleague at the Marin Institute who is uh, just spending six months just doing that, mm-hmm. trying to find out why. You know, it's absurd that tunneling in New York cost about, if I remember well, something 20 times what it cost in Singapore, you know. So, yeah, all this technology, you know, for the first time, by the way, first time in 100 years, urban transport technology is changing. You know, the subway, the buses and the cars have been in urban, you know, have been the main mean of transport in urban area in the last 100 years with not many changes. I mean, the subway are a little better, the cars are better, more comfortable, more reliable, but basically they are the same. You know, it's not the car we are using now are not very different for the Ford T. Okay. I mean, you know, they are nicer. So here we have uh, the sharing technology, the ability to convey vehicle on demand and to have enough data about demand, you know, the shifting demand during the day so that vehicles can be put in the right place at the right time, this is new. You know, this is completely new and will, I think, completely revolutionize transport. And therefore, allow, by the way, it will allow larger labor market uh, rather than more fragmented one. You know, right now, of course, because of the virus, all of us are working online. And then there's a temptation to say, well, this is it. Then it's a death of city. We don't need cities anymore. You know, I could be on a mountain top in Colorado, and it would be nicer than to be in New Jersey, and I could could do my job there. <laughs> I don't quite believe it. I think that the internet is wonderful. You need face to face contact, and you need randomness also. A large city like San Francisco or New York or Washington give you the opportunity of meeting people randomly that you will not have met normally. And that's where the spark will come, you know, that. Uh, so I think that this need to for face-to-face contact is still there. I saw that myself when I moved from uh, Washington to uh, New Jersey. At the beginning, you know, I had access to everything I wanted through the internet. There was no problem for that, for doing my job as an international consultant. I still felt the need for, you know, face-to-face contact. And it's when Paul Romer asked me to join the Marin Institute that suddenly I, I saw myself 
a jump in productivity. You know, I will not have uh, finished my book if I didn't have uh, face-to-face contact with my colleague at the Marin Institute. I think that's right. But even with that, I think being the case and the importance of face-to-face contact on the margin, presumably the coronavirus might change some human behavior. Yes, 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 it's possible. I don't know how, you know, for instance, now they sing about uh, densities, you know, that uh, New York is hit particularly hard because of uh, its high densities. Well, it's true, but, you know, it was true in the 19th century where there were cholera epidemic in London. So Ebenezer Elward, you know, say, well, we could have garden cities, thing like that. It has only, you know, this is temporary. Uh, Densities are here for a good reason. Don't forget that densities are not, it's not a planner who invent densities. Densities are produced by markets. No planners ever plan the density of New York or, or Manhattan. It's just a demand for land, demand for housing in Manhattan, which create the density. How can cities become more amenable to children and families? Yes, affordability. Huh? Affordability and transport. If you have a long commute, this is certainly not good for your family. So the question is not to shorten distance, but to shorten, to increase speed. You know, this is where, again, I disagree with some of my colleague planners who think that it's possible to shorten distance in a large labor market. I don't, I think that the important thing is to shorten, to have a higher speed. So longer commute, for instance, I, yeah, in my book, I quote uh, the case of a, a woman in South Africa who has a family and she has two and a half hour commute one way to get to her job. And this is the destruction of the family, of course. You imagine five hours, she works eight hours a day and she has five hours commute. There's no way, you know, to spend any time in your family to transmit any value, to do anything like that. So I think that transport is very important. And then affordability, you know, one thing we didn't discuss here, we, I put the emphasis on mobility, but also in this large metropolitan area, we have to review entirely our regulation to allow affordability. And household, whether they are household of one person or household with five members, to select where they want to live and how much land and floor space they want to consume. And this should be left to the consumer. Too often now, planners try to substitute for the consumer and say, well, here we will allow apartments should have at least 60 square meter or 80 square meter. I think this should be left to the consumer entirely, should not be regulated. I'm not against regulation. For us to say fire regulation is absolutely essential because the consumer cannot select the fire regulation they want. You know, they do not have the expertise. But I think the consumer and particularly a household, especially household with families, as you were mentioning, are quite able to realize the trade-off they want to make between distance to work, area of floor space consume, and area of land consume. Uh, and that should be left to the consumer entirely. What ancient culture built the best cities? 
Oh, well, maybe I'm biased because I'm a European. I would say Italians. The Italians? Uh, yes, yes. The, the Romans? Yes. Well, Rome at its peak, you know, it was probably more than a million people. It was probably not very comfortable for a lot of people. However, again, here, the people voted with their feet. You know, they, well, there was a number of slaves too in, in Rome. <laughs> Those didn't vote. But, uh, and uh, I think if you look at uh, Italian cities now, they are probably, I mean, some are better managed than others. You know, say Milan, for instance, is well managed. Uh, Napoli, Naples uh, is not so well managed, but both of them are wonderful city to live and work in, I believe, you know. if uh, But this is a bias. I'm sure a lot of people will around the world will prefer to live in Houston than in Milan, you know, that uh, this is the beauty of the human race, that we have very different tastes, a very different value. And I think, I believe that the market is there to accommodate those values whenever they change and whenever. So I can understand very well why some people will prefer to live in Houston than in New York, for instance. And it's not my, you know, my preference personally, but I can understand why. And we should accommodate that. You know, that's again a problem with uh, urban planners. Sometimes they project their own preferences on people, the citizen of a city. Uh, this should be avoided completely. You know, we are technicians. We are not gurus. You know, we are not looking for uh, for followers or something like that. That's not... Uh, Was Hausman a positive or negative influence on Paris? Positive, of course, yes. It's difficult to think that uh, uh, Paris will have survived, I think, very long with its uh, medieval thing. You know, again, this is uh, something I developed that uh, the city itself is grassroots driven. You know, the market is grassroots driven. People invent things, build things, technology change. But as soon as a city becomes rather large, you know, let's say more than a million, you need a top-down decision for infrastructure which will link the different neighborhoods together. And Osman did that in a way. Osman did that. It was a little brutal, but it worked. One of motivation was, of course, military. You know, Paris had a lot of street riots since the French Revolution. So certainly Napoleon III was concerned about it. So there was a military purpose, but there was also definitely... Uh, let's say, a conception that, again, probably, again, of this labor market, that you should be able to move from, say, the eastern part of Paris to the western part of Paris in a relatively short time. And you could not do it with the medieval streets, which were mostly, uh, many of them were five, six meters. You know, you see those streets in the Marais or in the Latin Quarter now, which, which are very nice, but the complementary, you know, of this small street with the network that uh, Osman put on top of it, worked very well. So again, the motivation of Osman is not uh, to be discussed. I don't think it's important. The important is the outcome. Some cities historically have been responsible for sort of this great human flourishing, for example, Athens, Vienna. Why did that happen in those areas? Is there this like huge inequality in terms of, I don't know, cultural capacity in certain cities at its peak? Athens was what, like 40, 50,000 people ancient Athens. And so yeah. what leads to this huge differing in sort of cultural productive capacity and what can we learn from that? What is, you know, let's say it's difficult to know why Athens and not any other city. Uh, by the way, Athens was at the hub of a network 
of Greek cities, which has also very, very, you know, were intellectually very flourishing. You know, Pythagoras was not in Athens. You know, Thales, a mathematician, was not in Athens. You know, he was. So it was a network of trading cities. They were trading, and so they had a lot of. Uh, so Athens was at the center of this hub. You know, in a certain way. Why at this time? Why Athens rather than Babylon, for instance? Of course, I don't know. Especially Athens was not a very large city, as you say, 50,000 people maybe at his peak, you know, at the, and it's amazing to see that a, a 50,000 city could, you know, could in a way influence an entire civilization for 2,000 years that people, get. but that's a mystery. It's clear that people met there, exchange ID, the freedom to exchange idea. I think that maybe it was the freedom within the city. It was not the size of the city. It was the freedom within the city. And why the Greek invented freedom? You know, if you compare again to the cities of the Middle East, uh, were dominated by the Persian at the time, there was no freedom really. It was a very, very, very well organized kingdoms, but there was no freedom. It was an absolute ruler. So it's the same with the Italian cities. The Italian cities were really merchant cities also. Uh, you know, the most prosperous was Venice, which was a, a merchant republic. And there was a, a study which was done some years ago about medieval cities in Europe, and which was called Prince and Merchants. And they found that the cities which were dominated were merchants produce much more artists and writers and scientists than cities which were dominated by a very strong ruler, a prince, you know. And that, I think this, uh, uh, you know, there is no commerce without some freedom. You know, even if you have an oligarchy, you need some freedom for commerce. And I think then commerce uh, uh, creates liberty. And this is, uh, you know, a, a painter like uh, Tizian, for instance, Tiziano, the Italian uh, Venetian painter, his main client was uh, Charles V, uh, was in Spain, you know, in Madrid. And Charles V asked him to come to Madrid all the time because, uh, and he was, a, you know, he gave him a lot of, you know, a lot of work. And Tizian decided to stay in Venice because of freedom. He said, I have my friend here. I can say what I want in Venice. I can write what I want. If I go to Madrid, you know, there will be the, the Inquisition here. There will be, <laughs> I may get into trouble. I like this freedom. It's not only painting, you know. I like to discuss with my friend. And only in Venice he had this uh, liberty. Galileo, you know, was free when he was in Florence. And when he moved to Rome, he gets in trouble with the Inquisition. You know, because again, Rome has much less, uh, because of the Pope there, had much less freedom than they had in Florence. Florence was a merchant city. The five boroughs of New York formed modern-day New York City in 1897. What was that process like, and is that a model for other places, for example, the sort of greater Bay Area in and around San Francisco? Yes, I think that even the five boroughs are not enough. I think it's uh, unfortunate in New York that we have this division not only between uh, cities and towns, but also between states, you know, basically three states uh, that create really dysfunctionality. I think that there should be an authority and probably political authority, which again, look at the entire labor market, you know, the, using the labor market uh, to establish the boundary. This is a bit what, by the way, the census is doing when they, they talk about MSA, 
you know, to define uh, agglomeration. You know, when the census talk about New York, they are talking about 20 million people which is basically the labor market of New York. And I think that there should be an authority there to coordinate, again, this top-down thing like infrastructure, transport infrastructure. I'm not sure if this is compatible with the American constitution, but this is happening in Europe. Huh? There, there are a lot of, um, for instance, say in the Paris region, there is the Ile de France, which is a, but it is a political authority. There is somebody elected there which has an overall view and coordinate infrastructure with Paris and the something like uh, 2,000 municipalities which are in the suburb of Paris. And they are the ones who will coordinate uh, you know, the investment in subways, but also in things like uh, storm drainage or pollution, for instance, or things like that. And I think that it's necessary to have a... Now, it's a little dangerous that this could become a just technocratic Thing which become political at the same time and might be a danger in that. I, this is a bit beyond my capability to, to forecast that, but there's no doubt. You know, one of the big advantage of the Chinese is not only that they have kind of a, an authoritarian government. I don't believe that it's authoritarian government would give them a, an advantage. It is that their, their city's boundary are very, very far away in the suburbs. And so they can coordinate investment, including investment in infrastructure extremely well. You know, again, that's why if you look at the, the investment in infrastructure in the Pearl River Delta, it's extremely impressive. These things serve many different municipalities, many different counties, and go even across boundaries like Hong Kong or Macau, which are even political boundaries. In the 1850s and 60s, Central Chicago raised itself up like five or six feet. They just yes. put all these buildings on winches. Right. Yes. What cities could do that today? And how do we, I guess, rediscover that spirit of being able to lift a city off the ground in the U.S.? I think that, uh, yes, this, this is a wonderful question because I think this is a major stumbling block now. I think that here, what we have now is a... We have a reduction of property right within your own property. And you have an extension of your own property right in exchange for losing your property right within your property. For instance, the planners can tell you, you cannot have a bakery store here you know, on your plot, or you cannot build more than five story. So you have a reduction of your property right there. But in exchange, it is admitted that you can expand your property right, or at least a veto property right over the property of your neighbors, or even within a, a five or six kilometer of your property. So it's a dilution of property right. You lose your own property right, but you expand your property right among your neighbors. But these property rights are not very constructive. It's only a veto power. So if somebody wants to build a tower, even 500 meters from your apartment, you can really prevent from doing it. So this is a, a system for paralysis. You see, if you have diluted property right, there is no action possible. Somebody will always veto something. And I think in all our democracy, Western democracy, we have this. We have to go back to property rights, which are restricted to your own. Uh, you know, recently, I don't know if you have seen this case in New York. It's called Amsterdam 200. It's a tower which was built the judge is requiring them to cut off the top. 20th floor, yeah. Where the building permit was basically, was obtained completely legally. There was no hanky-panky. There was nothing. It's just that 
a group of citizens decided that they didn't like this tower. And the judge said, indeed, it doesn't look like the rest of the neighborhood. Therefore, take off 20. So that's a, you know, a decrease in property rights, which practically make it nearly impossible to do anything. I hope they appeal and things like that. But uh, so this property, I think, is very, very important. Yeah, I think that I've written on that a little bit, sort of the the idea of the tragedy of the anti-commons in that this was a paper written after the fall of the Soviet Union. And the guy wondered, okay, why are all of the storefronts closed, but there's all these kiosks that are full of goods? And it's because within the storefront, there were like five different people who could say no. It was the property owner and there were like four other regulators. And so you had to get yeses from all of them. And we've turned a lot of society into having this right tragedy of the anti-commons in that there's so many people who can say no it effectively prevents anything from getting done because there's so many different roadblocks that that coordination effectively becomes impossible what has china done right and wrong with urbanization i think that uh, at the local level the chinese mayors for instance they are very good janitors they were a little late to take care of the environment but now they are doing it and at the local level so they have done a lot of things right. The Chinese are still a, you know, it's a dichotomy between central planning and local planning. And local planning is really reflecting markets in a certain way. But sometimes they introduce a measure from central planning in the middle of that. And so they go back and forth on it. And I think that at the local level, I think many mayors in China that that contact with understand markets and uh, land value much better than European or American mayors, by the way. I'm I'm surprised to say that, but yes, I can, you know. But you still have a command economy from time to time, which, you know, for instance now, the censorship, which uh, is happening more and more in China, this is the command economy coming back. You know, it is not imposed at the local level. There's a strong movement in university itself, even within the university of the dean, to give as much freedom as possible. They understand that innovation will come from freedom, but the central power feel that uh, keeping control is more important than productivity in a certain way. So they have this problem of... uh, the central government, although they lip service to market from time to time, but the market are really well understood at the local level. And they have good technicians locally. You know, they're very good engineers, very good municipal engineers. So that they are good janitors there, you know, more. <laughs> How do you make informal economies in emerging markets legible? The informal economy, by the way, exists just because, again, they are much too cumbersome regulation and things like that, which, you know, let's talk about the informal economy in housing, huh? in settlements, you know, like slums or things like that. Those informal settlements are there because the land use regulation do not allow their level of income to have, in, you know, a legal house. So this uh, informal economy is created there. It should be integrated as much as possible by First, understanding why people prefer to be informal rather than formal, or either they prefer or you know, some firm prefer to stay informal. Other are forced to be informal. And we have to understand that there is no reason why there should be an informal economy. Everything should be formal in the sense that legal. 
But you know, one example of that, I think, good example of success in that on integrating this informal economy was in Indonesia. You know, the large city of Indonesia, Jakarta or Surabaya, where they decided that the informal village, which has been absorbed by the city, will keep their status and be able to decide about their own standards themselves without having imposed on them the standard of the city. And that's become completely legal, although nobody had a building permit there. Nobody had even a title, a formal title. And this worked very well. It has been implemented over a period now of 35 years, if I remember well. And the informal titles, by the way, in Jakarta are trading. There's a slight discount compared to a formal title, but very, very slight. So that means that the informal economy has been entirely absorbed by the formal economy. And that's, I think, a good thing. But it should not be absorbed by over-regulating it, you know, or military. It should be absorbed by recognizing the constraint of small enterprise of poor people who cannot afford the minimum standards. Going back to a sort of previous thread, you mentioned Detroit and how sometimes single industry cities, if that industry goes, then a lot of things sort of collapse afterwards. So what are some examples? Because a lot of cities, for example, begin, they emerge because of an economic reason. Maybe it's a port or maybe it's a mine. And then over time, the mine might dry up. And so if there's a sufficient locus of activity, then it continues. So what cities have sort of successfully transitioned from different eras and what cities have not? And what can we think about as we sort of move forward and as the economy continues to evolve? Well, New York is a good example. You know, it became very successful compared to Baltimore or Philadelphia, which were also a very big port, or Boston, because of the area canal. You know, so it was an accident of topography. So it became dominant because of that. However, the port activity certainly generated other activity, which then become much more important than the port itself. So that was the success of New York. Now, why some cities do not diversify? By the way, in the case of Detroit, it's not so much that their main industry disappear or shrink. It's also that it was terribly managed as a city, you know, a case of bad janitor. And it's not uh, because if you look at the area around Detroit, you know, which are outside Detroit, they have not suffered economically as much as Detroit, not at all, actually, some part of Michigan. So it's a question of bad management. But also we have to recognize that some cities were located for certain things. Well, let's take the cities of the ancient Silk Road, you know, Tashkent or, or Samarkand. They were on the main trade route between Asia and Europe, and they succeeded. Suddenly, this trade route became irrelevant. The sea route was much more useful, so they disappeared practically. It's possible. So here, in this case, there's not much they can do about it unless maybe the Chinese are successful in putting a new infrastructure. and which will compete with the sea route. But if they don't, I think the best thing for people of Samarkand, and I believe that's what they did, was just to move to more successful cities. You know, the cities are alive. They live and some die and some prolong their life. But uh, the cities are not eternal. You know, if you look at the map of Europe in the beginning of the Middle Ages, the most important by far, the largest city in Europe in the beginning of the Middle Ages was Palermo in Sicily. 
you know, all the other cities were Paris, London were very small town, you know, they were, and so Palermo now is kind of a tourist place. So we have to accept that. I mean, if you are a mayor, of course, you try to find the alternative, try to, but you have to accept it. And if you are a citizen, I think uh, moving to a more successful city is uh, the best thing. Well, this was a success of the United States, you know, made by migrants from other places. Why did you title your book after a quote from Hayek? Because I think that this idea of a spontaneous order, which is a product of, uh, you know, it's not produced by nature in the sense, you know, like a rock or something like that or a tree. So it's made by, there's no doubt that a city is built by people, but there's not a coordinating idea which really create the city. And so this is a bit the anti-planning idea, although I recognize that for infrastructure, you need to plan it top down. But the essence of the city is really this spontaneous order which emerge and that no planners can have enough information to modify really, you know, because this information is fragmented among all the players whether it's a family who selects the best school for their children or it's a firm who selects the best location because of the skill of the worker which are around it or their customers, these decisions are very, very elaborate, but they are dispersed among a lot of people and no planners could ever try to comprehend them. And therefore, no planning is really possible in the sense of, for instance, deciding which area should grow, should not grow. It comes from the people. It's a grassroots thing. So that's why I, but by the way, this idea of Hayek was uh, already anticipated in the, you know, in the Scottish Enlightenment by uh, Adam Ferguson, for instance. Uh, I think to my knowledge, maybe I don't know everything, but uh, he was the first to identify this uh, spontaneous order, you know, that, that is not designed, but is still made by men who are thinking, you know, it's, it's not a random. What makes me mad sometimes when I read reports from the World Bank or the big institutional OECD, and they talk about cities being haphazard. You know, a city is not haphazard. You know, any building in a city is built because somebody invested this money there and built. There's a reason for it. It's not haphazard at all. It's a pure haphazard to us it, or random is because we have no understanding at all of uh, the mechanism which creates a city. What can urban planners, what do they misunderstand about their own profession? Well, not all urban planners are the same, but I call myself an urbanist. But uh, <laughs> but uh, I think that uh, urban planners, you know, there is a tradition in urban planning that uh, there is no quantitative tradition in urban planning. It was always a qualitative thing because it was so difficult to collect data about cities. Up to uh, the emergence of Google Earth or satellites, yeah, then suddenly when you had the first satellite for the first time, you had a view of an entire city, including its suburbs. Before that, you had to make maps which were very costly and every 20 years. So you had very little idea about all the city work. And so I think that... Uh, the planners, because most of them are like myself, either architects or engineers, they tend to be normative. If you are used to design building, you are normative. You know 
what is the size of a bedroom because you know what's the size of a bed and you know you need this around the, to move around the bed. And, uh, you know, a, a kitchen is that because, you know, you have an oven and you have a refrigerator. So you become very normative about what is good and what is bad. And it's normal. I mean, it's, it's not bad if you build a building to be normative. I think for a city, if you are normative, it's, you know, you, you expand the idea that this city is a very large building that you should design in detail. And this is not true because when you are an architect and you build a house, you have a client and this client is feeding you things. If you do things which is wrong, you know, kitchen is too big or too small, the client right away to say, hey, I don't like it. And so you have a feedback. If you are a planner, you have no feedback. You know, the only feedback is the market. You have no feedback from your clients. You know, if you decide, I'm going to put poor people in uh, public housing because uh, this is the best way for them, you have no feedback. You know, all you need, you have the feedback from the governor, or from the mayor, that's all. Or from bureaucrats will say, yes, we could build this uh, public housing in 10 years. It will cost that much. So you have no feedback from your real clients. And that's a danger. And that's, I think, so I think the planners now, and many of them do that, by the way, I have very good, uh, you know, there are planners, for instance, including in India or many different countries that I admire, which are really doing a very good job. But I think they have to realize that they are here to serve the, you know, the existing population. And when they do something which bothered them a bit, like they built a very high building or very short building or they spread in the countryside. They have to understand why they do that. People are not stupid. They react to certain things. They react to their own problem. So they have to understand why they do that. And sometimes it's not very good, like a building, for instance, in flooded area. But then they have to understand why they do that and to compensate by, again, introducing a market incentive, you know, to prevent things which are not desirable. Yeah, I think that's right. One of the, I guess, formative experiences is when I was finishing graduate school, I did a little bit of consulting on a new city development in Kazakhstan. And it was a lot of architects and urban planners. And I realized that they conceive of a city as a thousand city blocks. And so they had worked on city blocks before, and maybe they'd done even two or three city blocks at a time. But a city is just, you take one city block and you control C, control V and replicate it. And I was just, I was astounded because they were distinguished professors at MIT. And I didn't consider myself really an expert, but I fundamentally knew that that approach wasn't right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what do, you're talking a little bit about urban planners, and there's, depending on how you want to count, there's 120, even 200 plus master planned cities being built around the world, where sometimes it's the government, like what they did in Brasilia or Astana, and sometimes it's a private developer who buys the land and then builds the city. What are these master planned cities doing right? And then what also do they get wrong? Well, I think uh, if you have an existing city, you know, like say Mumbai, for instance, or Rio de Janeiro, I don't think a master plan is useful. I think that you should run the city again. Well, maybe then I will use the example of the CEO. You have a lot of data about your city. You see the way your city is evolving and you are trying to serve the citizen the way they are evolving, you know, and suddenly you have maybe an influx of very poor people in this city. You have to adjust this to the city. There is no need for a master plan. You know, a master plan is this idea. Again, it comes from the city has a big building. You know, you, you spend two years drawing your blueprint 
and then you have 10 years, you know, usually must be 10 or 15 years, and you have 10 or 15 years to build according to the blueprint. This is good for a building. It's not good for a city because you don't know what's going, you know, the city is going to be confronted to external shocks all the time and you have to react to those shocks. Those things are not useful. What is wrong with the master plan too is that you have an enormous effort during the master plan preparation, usually by consultants who prepare a database which will serve, let's say, as a good housekeeping seal for the master plan. See, we have collected all these data, so we are serious. But in fact, at the end, the master plan will have nothing to do with the data collected. So you have this data which is collected for two years, and then this database become obsolete very quickly. And nobody, you know, you have not established a system in the city to collect the data uh, regularly. I hear that when Mayor Bloomberg became mayor of New York, he was absolutely astonished to realize that a lot of data was produced by the city, but was never collected in a way which could be reinterpreted. And that mayors will have to take decision without really understanding what was going on compared to the way CEO takes a decision about his business. You know, he will know exactly, you know, how many phone has been sold, uh, how much they cost. And if there's a new product, uh, if this product is doing well or not, he's aware of it every day, I suppose, or at least every week or every month, where a mayor is waiting for the 20 years master plan or 10 years master plan. So that's wrong. Now, if you are creating a new city, a really new city, and you need to do that, then that, of course, is very different. You have to establish a framework. But you should not consider it as a building. You should define very quickly what is public, what is private. So you will allow the market to thrive if there is a very clear difference between private. You know, basically, you establish your street, street network. Now, you should not agonize on the street network. I don't think it matters you know, very much. You know, you see Manhattan, it was established by surveyors, you know, in the beginning of the 1800s without knowing anything about subway, about anything, and they did very well. What was important in Manhattan is that they established long in advance what was going to be a street, what was going to be private. And then citizens then could invest in the private lot, in advance, long in advance, and with the security that they knew there was going to be a street here, you know, or an avenue or something like that. And that's what's important. So I think when you create a new city, the most important thing, establish this network. Don't agonize too much on the network, you know, whether you want to have a grid or diagonal or whatever. I don't think it's that important. Do whatever you think is right, but establish this boundary first and then Put some key building right away. You will have some government building. You may want to have a library. You may want to have a place to collect taxes or whatever. Put those buildings here because you need them. And after that, let the market decide, you know, and see what happened. And then adjust your infrastructure. Once you have the right of way, adjust your infrastructure to what the market decides. Yeah, that's how we are generally sort of thinking about charter cities. And one of the I guess interesting sort of themes you've brought up several times is the idea of with urban planners, the difference between a building and a city. And one of the themes that we often discuss in the office is the difference between a real estate and cities. 
So a lot of the people building new cities, they are real estate developers. So they approach this as a real estate project. They think this is a shopping mall, but it's basically a big outdoor shopping mall with some residential, some commercial, some like educational establishments. And even if they're building for 100,000 residents, they're still approaching it within that general framework where what they do is they provide the infrastructure like roads, electricity, et cetera. They build the buildings and they sell them. And then maybe they turn it over to a like HOA or something, but it doesn't really function as a city in that yeah. sense. And so one of the things that I haven't figured out how to articulate, right, but like that distinction. Yeah, I have seen that also in special economic zone that I worked in in China. When I, they had a tendency to, you know, the governments, the city government developed the infrastructure but establish much larger lot, I think, that they will give to developers. And those were too large, in my opinion. I think that one way to solve this problem is to fragment property into relatively small lot. Now, you will allow, if somebody wants to build a department store, obviously they will have to aggregate those small lot together. It should be allowed. But the unit, when you pass it on to the private sector, the unit should be relatively small. Again, one of the big success of Manhattan plan was that the lots were small. You know, they were a small lot. So you could have on the same lot, you know, a guy start a bakery and another one does something else. And where if you give a, like in those Chinese, new Chinese city, if you give a very large lot, let's say near summer or next, uh, nearly one square kilometer, say, you know, maybe 20 hectares or 10 hectares, it's too large. So you have, you know, again, a developer again will do a, a very large thing, which makes sense from a developer point of view. It doesn't make a city of it. So you need this fragmentation. So you have a lot of small initiatives. Again, markets work well when there are a lot of players. If there are only two or three players, you have an oligarchy, you do not have a market. So you see that this fragmentation is very important. Robert Moses or Jane Jacobs? <laughs> well, you know, Moses did some good thing too. He had the, I think maybe the book of uh, Carol uh, explained, you know, it's such a fantastic book, explained what went wrong in a way that power get to his head and, and uh, you know, power corrupt. Although I don't think he was, he was corrupt in the sense of uh, his power get to his head. And, uh, you know, I'm a big admirer of, of Jane Jacobs' of, uh, writing, but say sometime again, I can see here a bit of the negative property rights that you have over other things. She's a NIMBY. Yes. So that's a little disturbing in a certain way. But again, if you have, you know, in a way, it's very much related to what we were discussing just a few minutes before. If you have a, a city with a lot of small lots, you know, like Manhattan, you know, the standard lot, and suddenly you have a big developers or the government give power to a very large developer who say, we, we are going to assemble uh, 20 blocks and consolidate them and do a fantastic mega structure there. That's, of course, completely legitimate to revolt against that. But it's only because you are completely disturbing the entire thing. If one of your neighbor wants to do something and you don't like it, that's very different. You see that we get back again to this fragmentation. 
suddenly, uh, you know, there was this case in Connecticut, uh, New London, what's called, uh, it went to the Supreme Court with did a terrible judgment, uh, Kello versus New London, I think it was called. It was a mayor who decided that there were some housing which were, you know, not in bad shape, but they were not very prestigious, let's say. And he decided that if he could consolidate this area and give that to a developer, you will have a shopping mall and some uh, commercial thing, and it will create then revenue for the city. And where this area didn't produce much revenue because, again, the houses were very modest. He managed to get eminent domain to expropriate this area. This, I think, is completely illegitimate. You know, to use eminent domain for a road is okay. You know, you have no choice. So for a pipeline, probably. For a railroad, it's, you know, you have no choice. But to use eminent domain, just because you prefer a different land use, I think is completely wrong and anti-democratic. And by the way, in this case, uh, it didn't work. You know, eventually the developer went bankrupt and the thing is now derelict. So I think there I'm on the Jane Jacob side in this case. I will not be on the Jane Jacob side for Amsterdam 200 for instance. That's considered to be Jane Jacob's influence. Yeah, I mean, you to a certain extent, I don't know, I, I'm a big fan of Jane Jacobs' writing, but yes, yes. a lot of her community activism stuff seems to have heavily influenced the empowering local communities to, as you say, negative property rights to effectively veto, and that's leading to a lack of additional housing units and other yeah, yeah. commercial real estate in, in major cities. So, because I just sort of thought about this, isn't Robert Moses, to a certain extent, the houseman for New York? Right. Like they basically tried to bulldoze a bunch of stuff and build massive infrastructure projects to increase the, the labor market. No, no, look, look, no, not really. If you look at Robert Moses, it was really mega structure that he was putting on top of uh, New York. There was a very interesting, very interesting, horrible project by Paul Rudolph. What's the time was a very well known, he's forgotten now, but uh, in the 60s, he was considered one of the best architects in the US. Paul Rudolph, uh, this mega structure, we started the Hudson and crossed, I think it's over Canal Street, and it's a highway basically, but the mega structure built over the highway. This is terrible, you know, again, uh, this mega structure, this is what destroys a city. It's very different from if you look at uh, Osman and what is called now Osmanian houses. Basically, on both sides of the avenue he created, he created lots, and then you had the market was filling those lots. You know, he didn't design anything, although it's now called uh, Osman housing, although he never designed anything except the right of way. So it's a very different from the Robert. And don't forget that the Osman roads were not the new streets, where, yeah, it's true that they were to be able to go from one part of Paris to another, but they were a very wide sidewalk. And of course, there were shops on both sides. Huh? They were no... So again, and the shops were created not by Osman, but by the market. So you see, they, he fragmented also the property along his roads. And that's what financed them, by the way. I mean, there was... Uh, people were compensated. You know, one very interesting book to learn about Osman is uh, one book by Zola, 
would describe exactly what happened when one of her, he takes a neighborhood and he goes into, you know, the small shops were ruined by it or were on the small street, which were kind of damp. And then suddenly you have the competition of this uh, big uh, department store coming there. It's called the Bonheur des Dames in French. I'm not so sure what the translation. If you want to learn about Osman, I strongly recommend this book. It's extremely, it's really journalism, much more than uh, just a novel, Romy. It's a novel. What's it called? We can include it in the show transcript. It's called, in French, Le Bonheur des Dames. I'm not so sure. I think uh, how it's translated into English. I'm sure you can find it on the internet. What's the translation? Zola, Z-O-L-A. Z-O-L-A, yeah. Emile Zola. And Le Bonheur des Dames, you know, the literally the happiness of women, of ladies, or I don't know what's called, what's the translation. It's a, the Bonheur des Dames was, in fact, the name of a department store which was created on one of uh, Osman Avenue. So it's a name given during the, you know, by the novel, but uh, it's in fact the Bon Marché in Paris, you know, the current uh, department store still exists. And it's a wonderful way of understanding. And Zola is sympathetic to both sides, you know. He's sympathetic to the people who are in this damp space destroyed by Osman and have to make a new living. And also sympathetic to the new employee who suddenly work in those departments to all this modern thing, which are completely at a different scale. And you see that also as a social promotion, in particular for migrants coming from the countryside, coming to work in Paris, you know, compared to working in a small shop where you will be always a kind of a, a small employee and so like that. So the, it's extremely well balanced view of a, a Schumpeterian action, you know, this, you know, creative destruction. It's a wonderful book. Cool. What can Africa learn from Shenzhen? Ah. Huh. You know, I have uh, very little experience in Africa, except North Africa and South Africa, so it's not very representative. So the few times where I work very briefly in Africa, you know, the low quality of governance bothered me a lot, especially at the local level. And uh, I'm not sure, maybe they can even bypass that. I understand that a city like Lagos, for instance, in spite of its infrastructure problem and bad janitor problem, have managed still to attract entrepreneurs, very creative entrepreneurs. So maybe they can bypass that. Again, I don't like to speak about things I don't know. And because I have so little experience in Africa, really, I mean, I visited, but not personal experience, I will not give an opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think the point about governance is an important one. And that's kind of what we're hoping to solve with charter cities, with the idea that if you're building, developing new cities, it's possible to get some governance reforms that might not otherwise be politically feasible that can allow for a more sort of responsive government to the needs of both the people and the businesses. It, during your conversation with Tyler, you mentioned that you didn't think there were any good locations for charter cities anymore. Why not? I was reacting to... Paul Romer's assertion at the time, when I said that he could build 50 charter cities very quickly. And I think they are not, you know, cities are location. You know, the location is important. A city is not just uh, good sewers and roads and uh, asphalt. The cities are people. So you have to have a location which attracts people. And people are not moving to a place just because there is a sewer and a, a subway system. They move to a place because there are creation of jobs there, because they are, you know, and the entrepreneur have the same thing. You know, why should an entrepreneur move to a new city in the middle of nowhere 
just because maybe taxes are lower, things like that, that's not enough. So location is very important, I think. So are there any location left? I don't think the good loca- there are many good locations left. However, it's possible that next to a city, like say Lagos or, you know, you could piggyback on the city, something different. So you will have the advantage of being next to Lagos. So that means the people who move to your new city will not have the risk to move in the middle of nowhere. They still can commute there, you know, if there is a risk. So that will be possible. Or if you are in the middle of nowhere, it has to have some advantage, you know, that locational advantage. Well, for instance, say Dubai, for instance, how was Dubai created? I mean, Dubai existed a long time, but it was a very tiny little city, you know, the mostly the pearl fishers or things like that. There was not little trade, ashish trade, thing like that, not much. The opportunity came really with uh, the Islamic Revolution in Tehran. You know, at the time, people forget that, at the time of the Shah, the planes were going from Europe to Asia, to India, or the rest of Asia, had to refuel in Tehran. You know, they could not fly directly from Paris or London to Delhi. They had to refuel in Tehran. So Tehran was a very important place to start. Suddenly, you have the Islamic Revolution. Tehran now has become very difficult to any business uh, refueling or whatever. So it moved to Dubai because it was the right location. Now, the genius of the people in Dubai is to realize that this new locational advantage, they transform it into not only being a refueling place, which after some time will not be needed anymore, by the way, you could fly directly from Europe, but they made it into a free zone and it attracted a lot of business that because of good governance, you know, within an enclave, within the perimeter, Again, that's maybe the Shenzhen lesson, you know, within the perimeter, you really change the rule and you made rules transparent and working well. And suddenly Dubai became attractive in itself, in a way, replaced also Beirut was a financial center of the Middle East. And suddenly it moved to Dubai because of the civil war in Beirut. So again, they have used here, let's say, geopolitics, which happened in the region, but really Dubai had no comparative advantage for a long time, if there was not a, a revolution in Iran and a civil war in Beirut, you know, but they were smart enough to capitalize on that, you know, it was not evident, you know, you could imagine that there would be such a bad governance that the Middle East will be without a financial center. It's quite possible. Yeah, that's a conversation we sometimes have in the office about. Right. Like there's been this, at least in some of the techno libertarian tradition, just like if we get governance right, everything else follows. When it's like, no, if you build a city in Antarctica, nobody's going to want to move to Antarctica, <laughs> even if it has the best rules in the world, the best subway system in the world. Yeah. And yeah, we typically think about you can build a satellite city. So one of the new cities we're working with in Zambia is a satellite city outside of Lusaka being built for 100,000 residents. Right. And so they can access the labor market of Lusaka. But then there is the possibility of these, right, like true greenfield city in the middle of nowhere. And typically the the challenge that you rightly point out is that how do you actually get the first people to move there? Nobody wants like, even if you've got very nice amenities, and typically the way we think about this is you need an anchor tenant. So 
right? You build a small port, you build electricity, roads, sewers, water, et cetera. But then you need somebody to come in and create the first thousand jobs or something. And with the first thousand jobs, then you have a small supermarket, then you have a restaurant, and then there's enough economic activity that hopefully additional people move. And this is the model that shopping malls use, right? They typically charge a lower cost per square foot to department stores than to the food court or to the jewelry shops. And so this is generally, we'll see how successful it is, but that's at least the, the sort of theoretical strategy approach that we're taking. Yes, right, yeah. The question is, why your anchor tenant will go to a place where there is no labor yet. You know, they will have to bring their own labor. And then there's this cash flow thing for, again, the city in the middle of nowhere. You need an airport, an international airport. This is an enormous cost upfront that you will have to carry. And when the city is still small, you have to pay for this damn airport. You know, it's a cash flow thing, you know, which is very difficult. So that's why I think the city in the middle of nowhere, which has been, quote, successful, where usually a capital, where, you know, the government tax uh, all the citizens of an entire country like Brazil or Myanmar in order to create a new city. And so you don't have a cash flow problem, of course, if the government is paying, I mean, the taxpayer of the entire country is paying for it. Yeah, I sometimes joke that there's three ways to build a city. You can There can be an economic reason, in which case people move there naturally. You can be a government, in which case you can force all your bureaucrats to move. Yes, right. Or yeah. you can start a religion, which is Salt Lake City. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's right. I'm not sure you need a major international airport. I mean, it depends on what your initial goals are, right? Like how you stage it. At a later stage, 20 or 30 years in, maybe you want a major international airport. But to start, right, like your five-year goal might be 50,000 residents. And if there is a large enough population in the surrounding region that you can draw from for basically like who are in towns of like 50,000 people, then you might be able to get them for the early stage talent. Yeah, it depends what your incontinent is. Usually it's, it, I don't know. It depends who your incontinent is. Yeah. If you are thinking of high tech international airport, to me, seems to be nearly indispensable. Yeah, yeah. Like our general assumption is that like you'll get a few sort of high tech cities. You can think of them as like Dubai clones versus Shenzhen clones, where Dubai basically imported a bunch of high human capital labor from Europe. And so they needed to be very like high tech. And then Shenzhen, right, started off with basically like textile manufacturing, doing very low productivity, high labor like just number of labor, units of labor activities, and then worked its way up the value chain. And while there's going to be a few Dubai clones, I expect with charter cities, if you get a dozen of them, nine of them or more are going to be focused on manufacturing just because that's where a lot of the value add is. And there, yeah, you can draw basically people who were formerly farmers from the countryside who don't have a lot of skills to, to man the factories. Yeah, it's true. If you, you know, in a way, you know, if you look at the way Dhaka or even Delhi has grown, it's really, they have expanded in far out area by starting a few factories usually. And then this grew, uh, you know, labor intensive factory, textile or something else. And then they basically a little town grow around it, but without unfortunately very good governance, you know. I remember in Dakar. Uh, some years ago, uh, there was a factory which collapsed, a textile factory, which is uh, six floors, and it collapsed. 
And I looked at its location on Google Earth, and it was something like nearly 60 kilometers from Dakar, in fact. So it was pretty far away. And I was wondering why would you build 60 kilometers from Dakar, a factory which was five floor high, you know. That. So it just showed how, in fact, there was a demand for it. And it's interesting how this thing grows. So, it, you know, if you had there a shorter city, it would probably have worked. And for the last question, one of the things I have been thinking about doing at the Charter Cities Institute is basically a model urban plan sort of designed, not designed, but like inspired a little bit by the Garden Cities movement with the idea being to think about like 10,000 acres, two thirds the size of Manhattan, a million people over 30 years per capita income at about $1,500 a year, which is median in a lot of African countries. And obviously you can't like replicate this one-to-one, but hopefully serve as inspiration, allow for travel anywhere within the city within 45 minutes using public transportation and developing this really like clear model that hopefully can be used as a reference point for people in the future doing charter cities. And right, like it feels a little bit like this might be a little some over planning, but I want to get your perspective on that idea as sort of a work product and whether you think that would be useful. Yes, let's say. If it is a city, you know, what you plan is, again, the right-of-way of a street network and some basic building, you know, civic building that you, you want to build at the beginning in order to make it a city, not just a suburb of something. I think that's completely legitimate. In your transport system, I will give a good uh, space to individual transport of the type of, uh, you know, electric uh, scooters and things like that, which I think which are a very good way to move around and do not require an extensive management of a network and again a, a very expensive cash flow. Even the bus system to be efficient in a large area require a lot of investment and management. And I think that, you know, if you look now at the trend in the many cities of Asia, the motorcycle is really the main mean of transportation. Now the problem with the motorcycle is the noise and pollution. You could now probably have a very competitive electric motorcycle or scooters which go about the same speed who have less pollution and safer also than the and I think that I will have that as a component of the transport you know I will although at a certain time when you have enough density you may want to to have a bus system or you have a bus system on only two or three lines but not in an extensive bus system because you know and uh, very very clear property rights about uh, your regulations and the way uh, people can build or not build i mean that i would have that as clear as possible and no nimby built in you know <laughs> build whatever you want so okay for me they let smelter in the middle of the city but that, <laughs> okay well i think that's all my questions thanks for coming on the show alon thank you mark thank you it was a pleasure Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. <laughs>